Hi, Scalable Investors. Today I have with me Lucas Miller from Vanak Capital based in Denver, Colorado. They are a multifamily syndicator. And before being a syndicator, Lucas was a lobbyist with the Colorado Apartment Association. So really excited to have you, Lucas. How are you doing today? Mason, thanks. Yeah, I'm doing great. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on the show and I'm excited to talk some multifamily. Perfect. Well, let's get into things a little bit. Why don't you just uh, tell us about your background and uh, for example, being a lobbyist and how you got started in real estate and all that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So before you judge me, um, you know, people hear lobbyists and they're like, oh, that's gross. And, you know, I, I agree with you for the most part, but, um, you know, I was mostly working on like zoning issues and landlord tenant laws. And uh, I was really on the side of the investor, um, if that, if I had to take sides. So uh, when most people hear that, they're like, okay, so he's probably one of the good guys. So <laughs> I feel like I have to preface that. But uh, yeah, so I was a lobbyist for a while and I was doing my own like single family flips and small rentals and stuff like that. And really just was having trouble scaling. Uh, same question and same problem a lot of people have when they start investing is like, how do I scale this? Well, at the same time, I was working with some younger big syndicators here in Denver and just kind of opened my eyes like, wow, this isn't really for... Uh, people that are super wealthy, you know, anybody can do this, you know, assuming you have a certain type of skill set. And so uh, I just kind of started looking into it and, you know, found a mentor, uh, did a few deals. And now, you know, that's been like three years. So. Okay. What was that process of finding a mentor? Because I know there can be a, a wide variety of different mentors out there. Yeah. Um, it's not easy for sure. Uh, there's, there's definitely some good people and some bad people. <laughs> uh, if you're, if you want to go that route and you don't have to, but if you do want to go that route, I would definitely recommend interviewing several people because uh, you, you got to find someone that fits for you and fits the type of investing style that you want to do. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to do small stuff anymore. So that narrowed down the list quite a bit. Um, I knew I wanted to syndicate bigger deals that are mostly cash flow driven. So that narrowed it down even further. Um, so, you know, I would just highly suggest doing your research before just jumping in with anybody. Okay. And was your mentor based over in the Denver area? No, no. Yeah. Out of state, um, down in, down Dallas, which is like the multifamily Mecca. <laughs> There's a lot of people down there. Um, but yeah, it, it worked out pretty well for me. I don't need someone in my backyard, but you know, the, the whole idea of mentors too is, you know, I've got a bunch of mentors and some of them are based locally. Some of them are not. And some of them have nothing to do with multifamily. Some are just like business consultants. And so, you know, and it doesn't have to be this formal relationship either. If someone's going down that road of trying to find a mentor, um, you know, chances are you can find someone that has written a book about something and maybe you can just pick their brain over an email. Uh, I know I've done that before. So, you know, it just doesn't have to be this, this big drawn out thing either. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I think people yeah. can sometimes overcomplicate things and yeah. Yeah. Everyone's got their own path as well. So <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Okay. Um, well, before we started recording, you mentioned you were, uh, about to close on a deal. Why don't you tell us about that and just how things are going in general with your business? Yeah, things are going really well right now. Um, of course, COVID kind of uh, threw a wrench into some things here and there. Uh, 
Uh, this deal that we were talking about is in Little Rock, Arkansas, and we actually got it under contract. Me and a partner got it under contract in February, uh, way back in February. We started underwriting it in January. So, um, you know, once COVID hit, the biggest problem we had is that our debt backed out. Uh, nothing to do with the deal, actually. Um, rents continued to be very stable at this property for a couple different reasons, mostly because it's primarily healthcare-driven jobs that are there. Um, but the debt markets basically just bottomed out. And, um, you know, people got really scared and money dried up and people stopped lending money and changed terms. And so it just threw a whole bunch of wrenches, multiple wrenches into the plan. Uh, but that's life, right? You know, that's why you plan for the unexpected. And, you know, we kept fighting and kept fighting and found a solution and then something else would pop up and we found a solution to that and then something else. So it's been a long road, but hopefully we will have that closed. Um, well, in about, you know, 15 to 30 days, depending on what the lender says. So yeah, it's been a long, long road, but over that overall business is really good. I was shocked at the amount of people that jumped at this deal. I think there's so many people with pent up, um, frustration with the stock market with, you know, even if they are investing in like hotels or industrial or office, not, not so much industrial actually, but hotels or office where, these asset types are losing money, especially the stock market. Um, they see multifamily as like the safe haven where they can just dump a bunch of money in. So uh, the the raise, as we like to call it, the the process of actually raising the capital to close the deal, that went very smoothly, knock on wood. <laughs> uh, not quite done yet, but it's gone very smoothly so far. Okay. And are you working with other GPs on this deal or is it primarily just your company? Yeah. Um, so we partner with a couple of different folks. Um, one, uh, we've just worked together several times on other transactions before. So we, we know and like each other. Um, the other person is sort of our net worth and liquidity partner. When you start doing these loans that require a net worth equal to the loan amount, um, you've got to have someone with a substantial net worth if you're doing, you know, six, 20, 50, hundred million dollars in loans. Um, so we have someone partnered on that, but all three of us um, really kind of bring our own different skill sets to the team and, and we bring different things that we can uh, both build on top of each other. So it's a really good partnership so far. And um, I'm really happy with this very small team that we've built. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just want to wonder what the dynamic is um, in terms of what if you have differing views of how you want the investment to go, for example, or how does that work when you're working with other folks? Yeah, I mean, um, for the most part, we know philosophically how we feel about things moving forward. Um, big questions like, would you rather hold the asset or would you rather flip the asset? Those are, that's, that's a huge thing that a lot of GPs don't talk about before they get involved with each other. Uh, meaning like, would you rather hold an asset long-term and just get cash flow from it constantly or would you rather add value really quickly and flip it? Well, you know, that's, that's a very t different strategy. And that's one that comes up uh, pretty often, you know, once, once, especially recently with all these valuations that continue to drive up. So if you don't know, you know, baseline how people feel about that, uh, you're going to have some trouble. And then uh, I've, I've worked with these two folks um, on some very difficult transactions, really tough um, that stretched all of us emotionally, stretched us, um, you know, 
to breaking points at some point. Uh, and it had nothing to do with the deal. The deal was solid. It was just various different things that, um, you know, just kept coming up and it stretched us, especially on this deal too. Um, and I just have seen how these people operate. And I know that both ethically um, that, and things like lying, like I, I have full confidence that these folks won't be lying, at least in the partnership. Um, and then just really strong ethics. We've had a chance to, you know, cut some corners here and there and people have given us that option and we just haven't taken it. So really knowing who you're working with, I can't stress that enough. Um, and so much that I have really uh, shrunk my circle of people that I am going to work with in the future because of that. Um, you know, we've had deals that went really well and had a couple of deals that have gone uh that have been harder. Um, the, the deals have all been solid, but it's just the, the various pieces behind it that have kind of struggled. And, and that's, that's something that you really need to know about before getting involved with people. Okay. Is there ever like disagreements over what type of renovations to do, for example, or? No, for the most part, it's, um, we, we put that on our property management company. Um, we, we have really good relationships with our property managers and we trust what they're saying to us. So we might have an idea of, you know, hey, we're going to go in and put in $5,000 of renovation package in a standard, you know, black appliance, two-tone paint, lighting upgrade, faucet upgrade, bathroom renovation. And they might come back saying, you know, this is really not the market where, you have to do that. Or they might say, look, we think we can push rents even further if we go up to like a $7,000 per unit renovation package with stainless steel appliances, granite countertops, backsplash, things like that. So uh, there's very little arguments about, you know, things here and there. I, we, we did have, um, you know, not necessarily a disagreement, but we, we challenged each other on this particular deal because um, you know, think something simple as like a parking lot. Um, our property manager said, no, it's fine. Just fill the potholes, um, stripe it, seal it, and we're done. We were more of the mindset that, uh, you know, we should really replace the entire thing because we don't like that type of style. We don't like buying deals like that. We think the seller's market will appreciate, you know, a full brand new parking lot. Um, and, you know, we, we weighed the merits of it and, you know, we, we do the best we can, but it's just mutual respect. So, you know, if someone has a different viewpoint, it's really kind of like, have they had experience with that before? And if so, should we listen to that experience or should we, you know, try and do it on our own? Okay. That makes sense. And I realize you have to have a lot of different things in place before the transaction can actually close, including like the property manager and other things. But why don't you go into more detail about what exactly you need to have in place? Yeah, uh, definitely a team. Like the, the team is, is critical to whatever you're doing. So even before you get a deal under contract, you should be, uh, have an idea who you want to use as a property manager and they should be giving you feedback as you're underwriting deals on, um, you know, achievable rents, things like the renovation package, submarket data. Um, they should be giving you feedback about that stuff. If you have a really good relationship with you, they'll give you an entire budget for a property saying, here's what we think we can make. Here's what it's going to cost us to do it. And, you know, 
then it's just you you're underwriting off of real numbers, which is really cool. Um, insurance, insurance brokers are huge. You got to have one of those. Um, same with a tax consultant. Some of these deals, like, especially if you're looking in multiple markets and you don't really understand the, the generalities and the, and the, you know, intricacies of different tax structures and different tax jurisdictions. And so you got to have a local expert knowledge. Um, and then of course the people you're working with, the GPs, you got to know, you know, someone's got to have the net worth. Someone's got to be able to raise money. Someone's got to be able to find the deals, um, underwrite really well. And then of course, um, a, a real quality syndication attorney. Um, so I, I recommend someone with litigation experience just because, you know, sometimes things happen and you, and you really got to be prepared with that. And if you have a syndication attorney, um, but then you have to have a separate attorney that has litigation experience, uh, that complicates things. So I'd like to, you know, I have my guy and he, he's awesome. Um, but, you know, that's really the core of it. The property manager's big, the lawyer's big, um, and then just kind of the people that you're working with. Okay. And I know last time we spoke, you mentioned that you have a, a property manager that's not in Colorado and they kind of focus on the region that you're usually investing in, which makes a lot of sense. But yeah. can you go into a little more detail about how you find a reliable out-of-state property manager and like, how you just stay in touch with them and all that? Yeah, this is, uh, that, I get this question a lot, um, mostly like from bigger pockets. A lot of people ask this question and the, the best answer I can get is it depends on what type of asset you're looking at. So if you're, and, and we'll stick to multifamily, commercial multifamily, but if you're looking at like a five unit building, as opposed to like a 400 unit building, those are two very different asset types and you got to find someone skilled in each. So if you're, if you want to buy like a, you know, a hundred unit building, the best course of action is to talk to the broker that is selling you the deal or, or at least giving you deal flow. Um, every time you talk to a broker for the first time or maybe the second or third time, you want to ask them, hey, who are the top you know, property managers in this, in this space? Who would you recommend? And they'll kind of give you an idea of, of who they would choose. And then you talk to enough brokers in the area, you start to hear the same commonalities, same names come up. And uh, then you can obviously start the interview process with the property manager. Uh, but another way you can do it, and this one's a little more unique, is searching apartments.com. If you go there and uh, you, you can actually just find an asset that looks exactly like yours or is really close to yours or is, you know, at least similar vintage style and uh, find ones that are really highly rated. Um, usually they'll have like four or five stars or something. Um, and, it, and the property just, you feel like it's a quality asset. They have a really nice website. They're prompting of responding to messages. Um, it's not just like pictures taken with an iPhone. So you can kind of get the idea of, um, you know, who the good ones are and who the bad ones are. And then on apartments.com, you can also search by like ones that are low rated, um, you know, the, the worst performing assets. Not only is that a good source of leads for properties that you could, you know, potentially target, but it's also a good source of um, property managers that you should probably stay away from or, um, you know, that you should at least have a conversation with. Now, I will say that's a big caveat to 
some of the property managers, they're doing a crappy job because they're short on resources because the ownership likes to run things really thin. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt if they have a really good idea of, you know, if they, if all the other properties are looking good, except for the ones from this ownership, you might give them a break. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. It's always good to see from different angles as well. Yeah. In terms of different sources. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just thinking from a, a passive investor standpoint, there's, there's obviously a number of different syndicators out there. So uh, it's kind of two questions on that. What do you think each passive investor should ask the syndicator? And also how do you think they should determine which one to go with in the end if, if each syndicator is underwriting based on you know, similar expected returns performed? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point, question. And, you know, actually I have my own podcast and that and YouTube channel, and that's really the core of what we talk about there is like, how do you tell the difference between a good syndicator and a bad syndicator? And so basically what I would recommend is if you have to ask just one question, it should really be about the track record. You know, what have you done? What's your successes? Um, who are you working with? How long have they been doing it? Things like that will really give you an idea of, um, a, how long they've been doing it. Cause you know, experience is a good, a good indicator of education in my mind. Um, the longer you've been doing this, the more stuff you've seen, the more hiccups you've gotten through. And, and really it's, it's a good way to, uh, get experience, but also it will show you that if they've been doing this, this long and they've continued to be successful, other investors are trusting them with their money and it's paying back. Um, another question you could ask is how many of your investors are repeat investors, uh, people that are willing to, you know, trust you with money, but then do it all over again because they were happy with the experience. And so you can always ask for references too. If someone doesn't want to provide references, that might, might be a red flag. Uh, some people don't want to, and I, I get that. Uh, but, you know, you can always ask. Okay. Yeah. You got to smoke them out sometimes and ask those difficult questions up front. Yeah. Especially if you're, if you're educated in the space, which you should be, if you're going to invest money passively, uh, if you're educated, you'll be able to weed them out pretty quickly. Um, just because a, they're just raising money for a deal and they don't really know anything about it, which is a gray area legally. Uh, but B also, they're just not going to be super motivated to want to help you that they're go through more like, churn and burn like they just want to get money and and go to the next deal that's that's fine you know but you gotta know who your money is actually being trusted to uh it's fine to raise money for a deal like um you know i have my own thoughts about it but that's fine uh but you got to know who's doing the asset management in year four five six back when you know that that original person is long gone or if they're not long gone they're doing something completely different um, you want to make sure your money is still being handled safely. I get tons of questions about like mobile home parks and RV parks and self-storage. And I just have to say, I have no idea. I have nothing to do with those asset classes. Not because I don't think they're good. It's just, I, that's not my wheelhouse. I, I have no idea what it's like because the only thing I'm focused on is multifamily. And it's highly likely that will only be the only thing I'm focused on for, for a little while now. But um, you just really got to know who's doing the asset management because that's where um, money is, is made. And 
someone, I had someone on my podcast recently and he talked about, he does asset management uh, full time. And if you don't know what asset management is, it's basically like um, managing the managers, managing the deal. And usually the sponsors do it, but sometimes you can hire it out to a third party company. And this was one of those guys. And he said, think of it as like a giant oil tanker ship. You can't turn it on a dime, but you also won't notice if your wheel is like canted one way or another. And he's like, that's the asset management. If your wheel is like turned slightly to one way, you'll never notice it until you're like year five or six down the road and your deal is completely sideways and you screwed it up because someone wasn't paying attention. So that's, that's the important, you need someone at the helm the whole time, making sure you're right on course. Okay. Yeah, that kind of leads me into my next question of, there's obviously a lot of people raising capital, like you said, and some of them are churn and burn and just not yeah. really looking to, you know, have a long-term relationships, I guess, with, with the investor. But what are some other differentiating factors you feel that makes a successful syndicator? Oh, man. <laughs> That's a long list. But I, I think at the end of the day, ethics is, is just such a huge thing, like in any business, right? You don't want to do business with someone you just get the bad feeling about and that goes back to earlier what we were talking about when you're picking a mentor or picking someone you want to influence you. Uh, you've got to make sure it's someone ethical. And there's so, and unfortunately, multifamily and probably all investing in general kind of attracts people that are um, kind of on that border. And, and I say on the border because like, I love making money. Don't get me wrong. I'm not doing this just for charity. I love making money. But at the end of the day, like, your, your whole reputation can be ruined with one bad word, basically, or one mistruth or one pushed to an to edge lie. Um, even if someone you, gives you the wrong impression, like you never want to, you never want to be known for that. And so I guess just ethically making sure that they're doing what they're saying they're going to do and sticking around to the end. That's why getting references is so powerful because you can see, you, you basically can use someone else's experience about they've gone through this, they've talked to this person, they've been through a deal and uh, you know, they're, they're giving you instant feedback. And some people might be honest, some people might not, but at least you're doing your due diligence trying to get references. Um, but yeah, you know, I think, when you want to become a good syndicator, it's, it's not a quick thing. And so I've watched, you know, probably a hundred people at this point come into the industry and then leave because a it's hard B you work your butt off and you don't get a paycheck for a while, you know, frankly. Um, and so if you can't understand that and, and, you know, see that to the end, it's, it's probably going to get burned out. And so if someone's been around for a little while, they probably have, you know, pretty good ethics and, you know, you do the best you can as a passive investor, you're going to make a mistake and that's fine. Uh, but hopefully you, you do what you can to make sure the person you're doing is uh, business with is trustworthy. Okay. I think that goes with a lot of different businesses. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. So I think we're coming to a close on our questions to the major points, but what, personally do you do every day that makes that you feel like drives you to be successful? Yeah. I like this question a lot um, because it's not one thing that you do and then you become successful. I, I had this horrible problem when I was early on in my investing career and this was like 
almost a decade ago where I was like, oh, I want to do flipping, but no, I want to do small rentals. But I also like this idea of like, you know, doing Airbnbs or something like that. And I would just jump from thing to thing to thing. And I was never successful. I made a little bit of money, but never to the point where it was like, this is lasting wealth. The thing that I loved about multifamily is number one, I love it. Like it's a passion unlike any other for me, but also I've been so consistent with it. And that's something I have to do every single day. So now it's gotten to the point where, um, I have investors that I have to respond to or have to talk to. That's not negotiable. And so when you first get into investing, you're not accountable really to anyone. So no one's telling you, you have to do something every single day. Now it's, it's easier. But when you first get started, it's like, you have to find something that you can do consistently. It doesn't matter if you do flipping, if you do small rentals, you know, I have my preference, but if you do anything long enough and consistently enough, you're going to be successful. And so the one thing I do every single day is just like, I have a list of things that I have to get done that day, no matter what, it's non-negotiable. And it's just consistently over and over and over again, every single day. That's it. Okay. Yeah. I also find that it helps me just to go old school and just write something on a, a little legal pad instead of yeah. having the good a checklist and Google Keep or something else. Right here. That's, that's I am same way. Like I, I you know, I, I write things on my calendar and put and I've tried all kinds of apps, but at the end of the day it's like I love this notepad because I don't know. I like it. Yeah, I feel like there's there's some deeper connection with just the hand and the you see yep. it, it's physical. It, you have to do it now. It's on a physical piece of paper. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. So if you want to learn more about the podcast or the YouTube channel, you can just go to fearfreepassive.com. Um, but if you want to, you know, get to know me, there's my website, bannetcapital.com, or you can find me on Facebook, Lucas Miller. Um, I'm pretty accessible. So uh, yeah, I'd love to talk more. And uh, if you're interested in passive investing that I I'm all about answering questions. So if you have a question, I could do a video about it, but um, either way, like I, what you're doing here is, is huge too. Uh, I think this whole thing about educating people is really the most important thing because the ethical people need to speak up. The, the really quality business folks need to speak up because, you know, in my experience, those are the people that usually aren't the loudest and um, people get the wrong idea about stuff. So I don't want that to be the case on passive investing. So, you know, that's why I started the podcast and, and the YouTube channel. Okay. Well, thanks again for coming on. And I think yeah. it was just really helpful just to summarize how um, important it is just to ask for references and also in terms of finding reliable out of state apartment um, property managers looking both at apartments.com and you know highly rated property managers but also asking around uh brokers yeah. in the area looking at common denominators seeing who's showing up and i think that what um is is really important like you said just to be consistent every day and uh, just don't get burnt out because those are the people that eventually will fall out of the race and it's mm -hmm. obviously not necessarily a race but everyone um has their own path so yeah again thanks again and hope to do this again soon thanks mason i appreciate it